Hello, I'm Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report and host of the Explaining Brazil podcast. I'm glad to announce that we have reached episode number 150. This podcast started as a pilot project and when we began recording it, we knew very little about what we would or could produce. In two years, the show has evolved considerably in terms of subjects, format, and production levels. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we love making it. And if that's the case, please rate us with five stars and spread the word to your friends and co-workers. Also, don't forget to support The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. You can subscribe to the best content about Brazil in English, or you can buy our journalists a coffee with a small donation. You can do both on brazilian.report. Now, with no further ado, let's get started with this week's podcast. With Brazil surpassing the total of 400,000 confirmed coronavirus deaths and immunization drives grinding to a halt across the country, the subject of vaccination continues to be a political hot-button issue. The latest example of this came last week, when Brazilian health regulator Anvisa denied approval for the emergency use of the Russian-made Sputnik V vaccine, which has become something of a soft power outlet for the Putin government. A decisão não poderia ser outra. Teria que ser impedir a importação excepcional. The vaccine's manufacturers didn't take the rejection lightly, lashing out at Anvisa and claiming its decision was politically motivated. As proof, it said, the Russians brought up a controversial US government report that urged Brazil not to buy Sputnik V to avoid, quote, malignant influences in the Americas. This case is a textbook example of vaccine diplomacy on full display. This week, we will talk about why Brazil is shunning Sputnik V and how that plays into much broader geopolitical games. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Brazil is lacking vaccines and its coronavirus infection and death figures remain at high levels. While the crisis in India has dominated global headlines of late, Brazil's health emergency is far from over. So it came as a shock when Anvisa, Brazil's regulator for medicines and health procedures, decided to deny emergency approval to a new vaccine, which is already being distributed in other Latin American countries. The decision came as a massive setback to Moscow, which has been using vaccines as a soft power tool. And Russia is not alone in this. In fact, the very few countries with the ability to produce coronavirus vaccines at scale have been using these medicines as instruments of influence. Flavio da Fonseca is a professor at the Microbiology Department of the Federal University of Minas Gerais, a member of that university's Center for Vaccine Technology and the current president of the Brazilian Virology Society. He explains what Anvisa technicians were looking for. So that the adenovirus-based vaccines are vector vaccines. Vector vaccines, 
as the name implies. They work as, as a shuttle, as a, a way to deliver inside uh, cells of people being vaccinated, genes that code for proteins against the pathogens that you want to vaccinate against. Uh, so what the adenovirus-based vaccines are is that they, they are um, a vector virus composed of adenovirus that are harmless to humans, but inside through uh, genetic engineering, you could you insert people inserted genes that code code for the yes pro the S protein of COVID nineteen of SARS CoV two the virus that causes COVID nineteen. So when this vector virus was this shuttle virus enter cells, human cells after vaccination, they uh, produce all the proteins that they usually code, but also they produce the protein that codes for the protein for uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. And then our immune system recognizes that protein as a, an antigen and responds generating antibodies and lymphocytes to this protein as well. What Anvisa uh, saw was a, a lack of proof that the vaccine the, the, this shuttle vaccine, this vector vaccine, was unable to replicate. Uh, concerning, I mean, and according to to Anvisa, uh, the documents that uh, the, the 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 makers of the vaccine provided uh, suggested that that some of the virus in this in this in the batches that were being made are still replicative. And remember, one of the the, the most important issues about the vector vaccine is because the vector in itself is unable to replicate, which is a, a safety assurance about vector vaccines. So what they uh, are worried about, and Visa especially, is that uh, during this process of making this virus in this special cell, the virus may have acquired this gene that is usually missing from vector virus, and therefore it is able to replicate. And therefore, if it is able to replicate, it is not no longer a, a, a vector vaccine in the, in the sense that it can replicate and therefore it can multiply inside human cells and maybe even uh, being spread to other humans after, after immunization. This is the, the, the main concern by Anvisa. There were, there were other problems as well. Anvisa also mentioned that there's some documents are, are missing, so they cannot uh, be sure of all the process, all the regulations that have to be met in order to a vaccine to be clarified for importation. And this is what Anvisa uh, uh, argued in, in, in when they, they publicly presented their position blocking the importation of the vaccine. Now, the decision enraged millions of Brazilians who are desperate for more vaccines and are frustrated by the country's delays in immunizing the population. Also, the fact that President Jair Bolsonaro has spoken out against vaccines and that the demand for Sputnik V has largely been made by left-wing governors gave the impression that the decision may have been contaminated by politics. The Russians say that much very clearly, even threatening to sue on visa for libel. But what is the scientific community saying about the decision? Uh, I want to believe that the decision by Anvisa was purely technical. I've been talking to other uh, colleagues here, virologists and epidemiologists and infectologists, and, and, and it's quite divided. There, there is people that believe that the decision was technical, however, uh, there is people saying that the decision was not purely technical and there was contamination uh, by politics on the, the decision-making um, uh, in the decision that Envisa made last week. 
so there, there were some flaws in the announcement. The, the, the presentation itself, because it was public presented, was not well conducted. So at the end of the presentation, some doubts was still there, and we're not sure if uh, Anvisa was was reading uh, the documents correctly. So we have to ask them over and over to be sure that, that what they were saying. This itself, uh, it's, it's, it's a proof that the process didn't go well. However, uh, uh, I still, as I said, I still want to believe that the decision was technical, even if it was wrong, if there's something wrong, because it does not definitive what, if there's something wrong with the decision, all that Gamaleya has to do is to prove that an visa was wrong and to send the correct documents and then reset it all over and start it again. It's not going to be a, a forever, uh, forever uh, thing to do. I mean, it's just have to provide the right answers and the right documents and start it over. And then Anvisa will have to accept the importation. However, uh, uh, the Gamalay Institute itself also choose to uh, path of confrontation instead of providing these documents. And that would be the best, uh, that, that wouldn't be the best solution. The best solution would be just to uh, uh, provide what was being asked even if you have to point out that the uh, agency is wrong. And there's nothing wrong about that. Well, just say, well, you, you, you got it all wrong. What I meant was this and that. And then you correct the information. If there is no problem with the vaccine, I'm sure Anvisa will uh, uh, um, uh, alter its decision and, 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 and uh, make it possible to import the, the, this, this vaccine that is so much needed at this moment right now during this terrible moment that we live uh, concerning the escalation of COVID-19 in Brazil. But how important it is for a regulatory body to conduct its own investigations and how much should Anvisa base itself on what other regulators are saying? Uh, you can uh, listen, you can uh, read what others are saying about the, the vaccine, and but you cannot base your own decision on uh, solely on, on what the others are saying. You have to analyze the data yourself, see what it's it's uh, being there, what is there to to make a, a decision. Because um, uh, the the requirements in different countries are different. Therefore, you have to adapt uh, the the data that you need and and what you're asking to each uh, particular. Uh, environment. So, as, a, as an independent body, you have uh, the, the duty to to analyze the documents, uh, see if everything is in place, all the questions are answered, and then you can listen to the others and say what they have to say as as a, a additional experience, but not base your own decisions in what the others are saying. You have to have your own conclusion based on the data that has been provided uh, by the vaccines manufacturer. Dr. Flavio da Fonseca, thank you very much for your time. After the break, how Sputnik V and other vaccines are being used as weapons to give global powers more influence and power in Latin America. We'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Ewan Marshall, editor at The Brazilian Report. I've been with the site for around three and a half years now, and I'm delighted to be speaking to you today during the 150th episode of the Explaining Brazil podcast. Now, we've come a long way since episode one. With U.S. President Joe Biden adopting the America First policy on immunization, in Europe also focusing on its own citizens, major powers such as China and Russia were able to get their foot in the Latin American vaccine door. At one point, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador accused rich countries of hoarding vaccines. When several nations south of Rio Grande received their first vaccine shipments, they didn't get them from Western pharmaceutical giants. They came from China, Russia, and in some cases, India. In Brazil, vaccine rollouts were only made possible in January thanks to the CoronaVac, developed by Chinese lab Sinovac. That vaccine still accounts for the lion's share of jabs in Brazilian arms, as Pfizer only sent its first 1 million dose shipment in May. With the exception of Suriname and Guyana, All South American countries have relied on Chinese and Russian vaccines. In many cases, both. Vaccine diplomacy has been around for as long as the vaccines themselves. But in other moments of human history, and even during the Cold War, adversarial countries collaborated with each other. Health diplomacy used to be focused on ensuring equitable access to these two for low- and middle-income countries. This time around, however, Rich nations are more worried about getting themselves out of the crisis before helping anyone else. Imagine they are on an airplane and the emergency light has just come on. These wealthy countries are following the safety rules and putting their own oxygen masks on before helping others. David Fidler is a senior fellow for global health and cybersecurity at the Council on Foreign Relations. David, thank you for joining our show It seems that coronavirus vaccine diplomacy has become less about cooperation and more about cementing spheres of influence around the world. Can vaccines further divide what is an increasingly polarized global scene? Yes, I think what what you've indicated about vaccine diplomacy not being a new phenomenon is correct. I think What we're seeing today, however, is an entirely transformed world. If we go back before this pandemic, when we were thinking about vaccine diplomacy or even diplomacy as it related to other types of pharmaceutical interventions, such as antiretrovirals for HIV AIDS, we've long had a problem in global health with inequitable access to essential medicines. And in that, so for example, in the post-Cold War period, we did have vaccine diplomacy, but it took place in an international system where the United States was the dominant power, democracies were in the ascendance, and we really didn't have to worry about balance of power politics. Today, the world is transformed, and we see that in how vaccine diplomacy is unfolding. Okay, the first, obviously, is this pandemic. We have a wicked pathogen, um, COVID-19, for which a vaccine is really the only exit strategy to get countries back to any semblance of normal political, economic, and social 
life. And so the the pandemic itself has elevated how critical it is to have access to a vaccine. However, we're seeing that need take place in a context in which the world is now changed but because of three factors. And we see each of these three factors playing out in vaccine diplomacy. The first is the return of geopolitics. So balance of power politics has now returned with a vengeance to the international system. And we see this in the way in which the United States and China, for example, have approached this pandemic, as well as the vaccine issue, as part of their rivalry for influence and power in the international system. We also have that playing a role in terms of how Russia is looking at vaccine diplomacy, how India is looking at that also with an eye on, towards Chinese influence. Second factor that's influencing this is the return of ideological competition. As I indicated before, in the po immediate post-Cold War period, the United States was ascendant. Democracies were in the driver's seat. We really didn't face ideological competition from authoritarian states. That's changed. So now we have uh, ideological competition between the community of democracies and what's called the rise of authoritarianism in, in international politics. And that's also affecting vaccine diplomacy. The third piece of this is technological. So if we think back even a decade ago when we had the H1N1 influenza pandemic, vaccines were really only made available and manufactured by pharmaceutical companies in, in the Western world, in the United States and Europe. Today, we've got vaccines being produced by Russia, by China, by India. So technologically, in the area of life sciences and biotechnology, the world has also changed. And that gives Russia and China, for example, a chance to use their own vaccines as a part of their diplomacy in responding to this pandemic. So those four features, I think, are what make vaccine diplomacy today so different from what we've seen in the past. How much of this possible gain in influence is attached to the efficacy and safety of vaccines? Because China's coronavirus has tested to lower levels of efficacy than others, but still accounts for most jabs in many countries. And I mean, any vaccine is better than no vaccine, right? One of the features of this pandemic in terms of Russia and China specifically offering their vaccines either through donations or through sales um, has been this question of verifiable efficacy and safety of the vaccines. And this is also where we see a difference, you know, from a decade ago with uh, the last influenza pandemic, where if Western pharmaceutical companies um, are the ones producing the vaccines, we have a, a standard way of making sure that those are vetted, they're approved um, according to international standards with the Russian and the Chinese vaccines not following those procedures or those processes. We have this question that's raised about those vaccines. The problem with regards to efficacy and safety, there, the lack of transparency with regards to efficacy and safety with Russian and Chinese vaccines has to do with the desperate need that countries have to get access to any vaccine. And even though the Russian or the Chinese vaccines might in practice in immunization campaigns not have the level of effectiveness of, say, Pfizer 
or Moderna or some of the other vaccines not being made available uh, to countries in, in need, a 51% or a 50% vaccine is better than no vaccine because it will provide some protection for the population. So even with a lower efficacy of, say, for example, some of the Chinese vaccines, that still gives China the opportunity to offer countries vaccines when, for example, the United States isn't offering anything. We have seen reports of vaccine deals with many strings attached. For instance, Paraguay was reportedly requested to cut ties with Taiwan if you wanted Chinese vaccines. As we know, mainland China claims Taiwan as part of its territory and not a sovereign state, but Paraguay is one of just 15 nations worldwide to recognize it as such. But isn't that aggressive stance counterproductive in terms of influence? Because soft power is all about being soft after all. Yes, there, there's a risk. There's a number of different risks that particularly China is running with its vaccine diplomacy. Um, and I'll talk about, I, th I think they, they're willing to run those, those risks. It's absolutely clear in any type of diplomacy, whether it's vaccine diplomacy or mask diplomacy or ventilator diplomacy, we've had all kinds of diplomacy with regards to this pandemic, that this is, this is not a, a free lunch. There are going to be quid pro quos with regards to these types of bilateral um, diplomatic deals with regards to vaccines. So China is going to want something in return either immediately, for example, in terms of, of pressuring Paraguay to change its stance on Taiwan, or that quid pro quo is going to come later in connection with China wanting the support of countries on some other issue that's important to China. And we know that China has linked its vaccine diplomacy to continuing to roll out its Belt and Road Initiative, that gigantic infrastructure project through which China is projecting its power and its influence going forward. So I think China is running a risk there in turning countries off with regards to wanting something in return for vaccine donations or you know vaccine sales at, at cost. China is also running a risk with regards to continuing to offer a vaccine which is perceived to be less effective than some of the Western vaccines. But in the current situation where China's major rival, the United States, is, isn't really responding well to the needs of developing countries, low-income countries, with regards to having access That, gives, that, that lowers those risks in terms of China's diplomatic profile. China's secondary rival in this context, India, is itself having so many domestic problems with dealing with the coronavirus outbreak there that India's you know, attempts to counter Chinese influence in vaccine diplomacy has also sort of dissipated. So this, in many ways, gives China a more open field diplomatically to pursue its interests through vaccine diplomacy than if the United States or India were in a better position to counter what China is doing. In Brazil, the Jair Bolsonaro administration has started to adopt a much less adversarial stance on Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant. Bolsonaro was keen on banning the company from Brazil's upcoming 5G auction, but changed his tune a little bit 
as the country hoped to secure more vaccines from China. And one thing is interesting, Brazil's communication minister even explicitly used uh, 5G as bait to get more doses from AstraZeneca, which has a shareholder in common with telecom giant Ericsson, which is also interested in 5G. So in the end, Bolsonaro blocked Huawei from government networks, but the company will be able to compete for private 5G offerings. Can we point to other tangible results of vaccine diplomacy so far? Well, I think from the perspective of China, when we look at what where China has donated vaccines, the vast majority, I think all but two of the countries to which China has donated or sold uh, at an attractive price, it's, it's vaccines, all but two participate in the Belt and Road Initiative. So China's using its vaccine diplomacy to deepen the inroads that it's making with countries through that larger strategic initiative. And this, I think, is important because it tells us that China is thinking about vaccine diplomacy in terms of its larger grand strategy to advance China's foreign policy and diplomatic interests and to project its power across the international system. So I think those are immediate tangible benefits strategically for China in that it's deepening those ties, those relationships, the linkages between, for example, vaccine donations and other types of deals, other types of commercial opportunities, infrastructure development projects that come with the Belt and Road Initiative. Secondly, I think there have been a couple of countries, two or three countries that have changed their positions on Taiwan in order to get access to uh, Chinese vaccines. So that's an immediate benefit for China. Third, the United States simply hasn't been able to mount any effective um, you know, program from a strategic point of view to deny China those types of both immediate and near-term and potentially longer-term benefits from its vaccine diplomacy. Now, does the looming influence of China and Russia bear risks for Latin American countries? What we're seeing with vaccine diplomacy is not in the long term going to have sustained impact on these, the, particularly the geopolitical and ideological competition that we're seeing. We're more likely to see those types of issues sustained over the long term in terms of things like cyberspace, cybersecurity, cyber espionage, where again, we've got a situation in which China presents a threat, Russia presents a threat, the United States has not got its act together with regards to those types of issues. So we could see, for example, the need that countries have to work with China on, on vaccine issues, um, lowering the pressure that we might otherwise be putting on China with regards to its behavior in other areas. And that includes in terms of some of the aggressive behavior that we're seeing from China and Russia in the context of cyberspace and, and cybersecurity. So that, that to me is a, a larger concern about what we're seeing with vaccine diplomacy. Not only is it not addressing the need for global equitable access to vaccines, but it may be setting up bigger problems in other areas such as cyberspace um, in the longer term. David, thanks for joining us. 
If you like Explaining Brazil, please rate us with five stars. That will help more people find out about this show. Or you can sign up to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a seven-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the site for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Música